Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special podcast series hosted by the CRISPR Journal and brought to you by Horizon Discovery. I'm Kevin Davis, executive editor of the CRISPR Journal. Uh, we're looking forward to this new series in which we'll be discussing a range of important topics in the area of CRISPR functional genomics. This podcast is sponsored by Horizon Discovery, the leader in CRISPR functional genomics, offering a large portfolio of CRISPR screening tools, reagents, and cell line generation. Horizon Inspired Cell Solutions. Our guest today is Alex Chavez, MD-PhD. Alex is Assistant Professor in the Departments of Pathology and Cell Biology at Columbia University in New York City. The Chavez Lab strives to push the boundaries of genetic engineering by developing new methods with which to modify and regulate eukaryotic genomes. I read that straight off their website. It sounds great. Uh, Alex, a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for having me today. Yeah, great. Uh, glad that you could join us. So, Alex, um, you're here in part to talk about CRISPR activation, and uh, you developed, uh, I guess, the second generation CRISPR activation platform that I believe is now commercially available from Horizon. So, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how that uh, came into being. Sure, sure. So, basically, I did my postdoc with George Church and Jim Collins uh, back in Harvard University. When I was there, there were some initial publications on using Cas9 to turn genes on for gene activation. Um, but the problem with the initial tools is that while they certainly worked, they weren't very potent. You needed a lot of guide arrays against one gene, and you could turn the gene on two to tenfoldish. Um, and so he said, probably you can do better than this. And so the way that CRISPR activators work is you take a, a factor domain, a transcriptional activation domain in most cases, and you fuse it to Cas9, and then you try to direct Cas9 to your gene's promoter and see if it turns the gene on. And so we simply thought, well, uh, the critical part of this system is this activation domain. Can we just identify a new one that's more potent? We did some screens, basically couldn't find an activation domain that was beating the current best one, which is BP64, but we found some other activation domains that looked interesting. They were weaker, but they still showed some activation. We then said, okay, well, how does native activation work? Well, native activation, is it, it is not one transcription factor going to a locus and turning genes on. It's a whole family of transcription factors. And we said, okay, what if we just fuse multiple activation domains together to Cas9? Would that lead to a more potent activator? And it turns out it does. And ultimately, that's how we discovered this DCAS9 uh, BPR, or Viper Fusion. And that's ultimately the tool that became one of the first second-generation CRISPR activators that are 10 to 30-fold more potent than the previous tools. Okay, great. And uh, for folks who are just sort of getting into this field, where, where has this work been published? Where should they look for more details? Yeah, so the paper is a 2015 Nature Methods paper. Um, it, my name is one of the first authors on the paper. Yeah. Great. Um, so what are some of the advantages of using CRISPR activation uh, and the tools you've helped develop over more traditional gain-of-function expression systems, uh, CDNAs, open reading frames, and so on? Yeah, so uh, one is simply the uh, ability to turn on sort of any gene. So if you want to, if you have to use a CDNA library to turn your gene on, you have to have a source of that CDNA, and that can be rather costly. Uh, two, uh, but compared to Cas9, you just need to order small little nucleotide oligos, and suddenly you have a guide RNA against your gene of interest. Um, there's no cDNA library against every single gene in the human genome that I'm aware of, um, and so that leaves many genes unexplored through those sort of methods. In addition, you can't actually package a lot of genes within conventional delivery systems, so some genes in the human genome are tens of kilobases. There's no way to actually easily deliver that, um, while all you need to deliver for Cas9 to work is a small little guide RNA. Um, in addition, things like link RNAs and small open reading frames aren't actually captured in a lot of our conventional cDNA or ORF libraries. And so 
Um, these would be things that I think our CRISPR activators are really a nice application for. Also, link RNAs. So link RNAs, uh, a lot of them are thought to actually work in cis. So they basically, they have to be turned on in their locus of interest, of, of native function, to actually carry out their activity. Mm. And so a CRISPR activator can actually do that versus when you express them in trans from a plasmid, you're not getting that same activity. Um, then also like isoforms. I think isoforms is something that we are all taught back in undergrad, but it seems to be we just ignore it when we do cDNA experiments <laughs> and we think it doesn't matter, but likely it does. The cell splices things differently in different contexts, and that's probably doing it for a reason, and we should study the biology as native a system as possible. And we think you, the activators let you do that also. So I, I think you've answered this, but um, it sounds as if studying endogenous expression is, is really important. Yeah, so, you know, it's one of those things where we theoretically believe it should be very, very important, but frankly, the data is just not there because the tools haven't existed um, oh. to a certain extent. And so actually, I, I think in 10, 15 years, we'll look back and say, oh my God, what were we doing before? But honestly, the number of examples is not as many as you would honestly hope. Very good, thank you. Um, let's move on. How do you expect CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I technology uh, to change the future of genetic research? Yes, I think CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I, CRISPR activators, CRISPR inhibitors, yep. um, they're, they're sort of two sides of the you know, same coin. So basically, I think they're going to let you uh, sort of get fine control over biology. Right now, a lot of what we do in biology is very uh, sort of binary. It's a sledgehammer. We're either going to take a gene totally out or we're going to have it on. But, you know, I think people, when they have a disease allele, don't necessarily have a total loss of function. They have a partial loss of function many times. Or they have a partial gain of function, you know, two copies, three copies of the gene. Um, and so we think that these tools are actually going to give you a finer control over biology and help you, hopefully help you ask things in more physiologically relevant contexts um, and also in, in new ways that are previously not possible. Mm. Um, how might these tools, for example, be used to better understand pathway relationships? Yeah, so I think that's actually one of the areas this is very, very interesting. So in the case of pathways, um, the way that it currently works now is that when we're interrogating a pathway, we kind of like knock out one little node in the pathway and say what happens. But when the cell activates a pathway or inhibits a pathway, it doesn't just do one thing. It does dozens or hundreds of things. And we sort of think that these are going to be the scalable tools that let you sort of mimic those same processes. Because ultimately, the cell pulls dozens of levers. We need to be able to pull a similar number of levers to truly understand what it's doing and to mimic that. And so I think these are the ways that we're actually going to be able to do it. It's truly scalable technologies like CRISPR-A and CRISPR-I. Yeah. Um, so Alex, for people looking to um, bring this technology uh, into their own labs, I mean, other than going back to your 2015 Nature Methods paper, what general tips or recommendations do you have to help them uh, uh, hit the ground running? Yeah, so I think um, there's, a, there's a few things I always tell people. I think that if you have one gene that you're really interested in, then I usually ask them, do they really need a CRISPR activator for that? Unless they really do want to understand something about like insist regulation and or um, isoforms. But many times they don't. They just have one gene they want to turn on. In that case, I generally tell them, use a cDNA. It's going to save you. It's going to work right off the bat. CRISPR activators are great. They do take a little bit of troubleshooting. I think a lot of people bring a new technology to lab. It takes a little bit of effort. Um, where CRISPR activators, I think, really shine is when you have several genes or a whole like family of genes and or an unbiased screen that you want to do. In that case, CRISPR activators beat anything out there. That's really the method you want to use. I think that's where it's really important. The other thing is a lot of people perseverate on which of the activators to use. Um, honestly, we, we published a comparison of several of the activators a few years ago. There's three activators, um, Viper, Sam, and SunTag, that are 
pretty much equivalently good. And usually I tell people kind of use what's available to you, what you feel comfortable with. If you've got a neighboring lab that uses Fiber, great. A neighboring lab that uses SunTag, great. Um, in general, it's not really going to matter as much as you think. There are some activation systems which are not good, and uh, they should read the paper to, that, we, that I previously mentioned just to be sure they're not using those. But aside from that, it's kind of kind of all the same. And finally, Alex, what are you working on now? What's what's the Chavez lab cooking up? Uh... Yeah, so we're actually still working a little bit in this CRISPR activator and CRISPR inhibitor space. We think that uh, the tool can be further improved. We also think that there are certain things that we never bother to tackle, like the, the potential immunogenicity of some of these tools. If we were to try to put them into humans, you'd want to actually tackle that problem. Yeah. Um, there's also some issues of, you know, scaling. Can these tools really be used to turn on dozens of genes, which have been partially addressed? We're actually going to really focus on that next time. Um, yeah, that's a lot of what we're doing. We're also doing some work to understand the duration of the response. So one thing that CRISPR activators and inhibitors might be good for is to do a transient pulse in the cell and have a long-term outcome occur. So you imagine yeah. you pulse it and suddenly the locus is always on. Yeah. Um, and can you build a tool that does that? I think that's an area that we're very, very interested in. Excellent. Well, a, a short discussion, but uh, lots to chew on there. Um, so I want to thank Alex Chavez, Assistant Professor at Columbia University, um, for joining us today and t talking to us about uh, CRISPR activation. Um, also, would like to thank Horizon Discovery for sponsoring this podcast. And most of all, uh, you for listening. Uh, look out for more episodes in this series coming very soon. Uh, for now, for everyone at the CRISPR Journal, I'm Kevin Davis. Goodbye for now. <laughs>